Whether you prefer to download or stream, if you're listening to my voice, you've probably connected to the internet. And depending on where you're from, you may have come to expect a quick, stable, and relatively affordable connection whenever you're looking to get online. I know I have. The pandemic has made it clear that access to a reliable internet connection is necessary to live, work, and engage meaningfully in civic life. We're doing everything online, school, work, shopping, healthcare. But for remote communities, this isn't something everyone can rely on. It's not fair that we have internet that doesn't work. The government deemed it an essential service, a basic human right. Everyone should have access by now, but we don't. It's not fair. I'm Tokumba Adibui, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. In today's episode, we're exploring sustainable development goal number nine, industry, innovation, and infrastructure. Speaking of infrastructure, the majority of Canada's north is dependent on satellite internet, which scores points for being available in remote regions, but loses out when it comes to data caps, speed, pricing, and reliability. Bad weather can put a community out of service completely. Altogether, this presents a huge challenge for northern communities who need to access education, conduct business, and stay connected. According to the Canadian Radio, Television, and Communications Commission, less than half of rural households have the kinds of internet speed needed for online learning. The North has some of the slowest household internet speeds around, and the cost for those services can quickly add up to $1,200 a month, often for speeds that pale in comparison to what other Canadians are used to. Canada has pledged to provide high-speed internet access to even our hardest-to-reach areas by 2030. But the way we engage online is quickly evolving along with the networks themselves, meaning the demand for connectivity is not slowing down anytime soon. So for this episode, we'll be looking into the widening digital connectivity gap in Canada's north. Listen, we've all been there. You're typing an address into your browser, you hit enter, and then you notice. The page is loading. Slowly until it just stops. And there it is, that mildly annoying and completely heartbreaking message. There is no internet connection. So many of us feel flustered by even a few minutes of interruption, but we can breathe easy knowing that unplugging and restarting our modem will usually get us back online. But there are a sizable number of Canadians who don't have that same assurance. Like today's guest, Andrea Brazeau, who knows that in her northern hometown, a disconnection can last for days at a time. I was born and raised in a small Inuit community in the northernmost part of Quebec. And the community I'm from is called Kangerswarutjok. Andrea Brazeau is a fourth-year student at McGill University in the Faculty of Education. She wrote an open letter to the Premier of Quebec about the internet gaps in her community. We reached Andrea to learn more. I think people just automatically assume that because we're in the far north of Quebec and the community is very isolated, that the internet's bad. But to me, it doesn't matter where you are. We have the right to have access to stable functioning internet. Right. And this goes to our remote and semi-remote communities all across Canada. We're not the only ones who struggle with unstable internet. When it comes to where Andrea's from, her family has the internet. 
but the speeds are not fast enough to support a Zoom call, load a YouTube video, or sometimes, as Andrea explained, even open an email. Sometimes my whole community is disconnected for the entire weekend, and so I call my parents, and I'm like, uh, so is internet down again? None of you guys are online. And they're like, yeah, it's down again. And I'm like, oh, my God. Mm. I've often said for politicians to really understand, just come live up north for a week and see what it's like. Right. Maybe then you'll start taking action and help us out. To help us illustrate this issue, Andrea asked her dad to record himself while measuring his internet speed. You can't compare the internet speed up north and down here. It's sad. Mm. I got my dad to do speed tests, actually, just so we could compare the speed of the internet. And my internet speed was 2,000 times faster than his. Andrea's dad, Mark Brazo, is the principal of the local school. He had to make three attempts before the test could even complete. Here's Andrea's dad. So I just clicked the button to start the test now. I'm watching the little bar move across the screen. I still don't have my result yet. I think it crashed midway through the test. So, so this is my point, is that the internet is just so unreliable. He tried again, and the speed he got was even worse. Okay, uh, the test result was 91 kbps, which would be, I guess, 0.09 mbps. Uh, Not lightning fast, that's for sure. Let's put the results of this test into context. The government considers speeds of one megabit per second insufficient for meaningful participation online. But the speed Andrea's dad measured fell way below that, 91 kilobits per second. That's just a fraction of a megabit. This is an ongoing issue where... Uh, You're trying to do something on the internet like a Zoom call, your call cuts, or you're trying to do your online banking and you get logged off. And it's not just the slow speed that bogs you down, it's the total loss of connection, which can last several hours or or even several days. And, And you never really know when this is going to happen. As Andrea's dad said, not knowing when or if the internet will come back Well, that has a huge impact on people's lives and how they feel. I picture my community and the mountains that surround my community and the ocean and the trees and the people. And I think of the kids and I think Internet is a way for them to kind of leave and experience the world outside those borders. And I'm not saying my community is like, we want to leave it. No. Internet is a way to kind of escape, to learn, to experience when you can't physically leave. Yeah. It's not just about getting things done. Without a stable internet connection, staying in touch with loved ones can be difficult. But for Andrea and her dad, who are both educators, this is as personal as it is professional. Whether or not their community has access to stable, high-speed internet affects what kinds of teaching tools they're able to use, the research students can do, or if they can shift to online learning during a lockdown. And because of the pandemic, when university shifted online, Andrea was forced to prioritize and choose one basic human need over another. 
I made the decision to stay in Montreal because studying back home would have compromised my final year of university. It was difficult because Montreal's the coronavirus hotspot. We're in lockdown, nothing's open. And one thing I really like thought about was my mental health. Mm. It's like being alone, my family's up north. Yeah. And I thought, how am I going to do this? Uh, how am I going to make it through the semester? The internet at home in Kangaswalochuk is just too unstable and inconsistent to support her online courses. Andrea wasn't only thinking of herself. She explained that coming back home from Montreal would put her remote community at risk. That's a lot of pressure for a student. But that pressure to remain south, to finish school... It's not the first time in Canadian history Indigenous students have been separated from their families and cultures. I asked Andrea how it felt staying down south to complete her schooling. The decision to um, relocate to Montreal to me in the beginning when I still lived in Gangeswadotruk was very exciting because I thought, oh, a city, I was very attracted to the city life. But when I actually moved here, I faced a tremendous amount of culture shock. People in the city don't stop. (laughs) (laughs) They don't take a breath. And I struggled and I struggled for many, many years, Hmm. but I adapted. I developed my own ways and strategies to live here so that I could continue my education. I have and continue to have an amazing support system. Mm -hmm. Not only my parents, but uh, other individuals who've just supported me uh, academically and with my mental health. But I know this is not the case for everyone. The retention rate of students who come to post-secondary is low. Mm -hmm. It's not a surprise because this way of life is completely different to our way of life up north. It's like a different country up north. Honestly, our mentality, our ways of being, and it's, it's a struggle in coming down here. A theme here is connection, not just to the internet, but between communities across Canada. Andrea explained how on the other side of the digital divide, there's a lack of understanding between non-Indigenous and Indigenous communities. And for her, this creates a barrier. If internet access was more equitable for remote communities, maybe things could be different. I asked Andrea for any examples of the internet being used to connect Indigenous communities. There's this big Indigenous community online. Like, I know this one Inuk girl, her, her name is Shaina. And she just blew up on TikTok and she showcases Inuit throat singing, uh, the food we eat, our traditional diet, the clothes we wear. She lives in Montreal, uh, so she has privilege to high-speed internet. But imagine how much more connected we could be as Indigenous peoples across Canada if we had high-functioning internet in the North. No one should have to make the choice that Andrea had to make, community or internet connection. And it's not just school that's transitioned online. Booking medical appointments, applications for COVID relief and employment insurance, citizenship, business permits, grant applications for nonprofits. If you've needed access to any of these services over the past year, the internet has been your fastest, safest, and depending on where you live, only option. 
I wanted to learn more about the ins and outs of what it takes to connect remote areas. My name is Mark Buell. I am the regional vice president for North America at the Internet Society. That's right. There's an Internet Society. It's a nonprofit that manages every .org domain in the world. The Internet Society is a global not-for-profit organization that was created in 1992 by the founders of the Internet. And they created the Internet Society for a singular vision that everyone everywhere should have access to a safe and secure internet. Even before Mark came to work at the Internet Society, he knew how vital broadband internet would be to everyone, especially remote communities. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, he was working in the Northwest Territories on healthcare policy. He started thinking about what could make it all come together, the internet. I found myself becoming more of an advocate for broadband than for healthcare services. And that eventually led me down the path to working in internet policy and doing whatever I can to ensure that all people are connected to the internet, but with a personal focus on the northern regions of Canada. What trends are the Internet Society seeing for connectivity among Canadians? We are seeing that a lot of services are moving online and a lot of government services are moving online. So in a world where you don't have quality access to the internet, you are missing out on, on some critical services. In Canada, there is a persistent digital divide that exists. And as a result of it being uh, most prevalent in rural and remote communities, we're seeing it disproportionately impact Indigenous communities. Under the mandate of access for all, the connectivity gap is something that the Internet Society is trying to change. It's not just about access, but also cost. So we know from speaking with some people in the communities that we work in that an Internet bill can be $1,200 a month. That's for five megabit down service. Because of overages, because Internet service is capped, the overages can add up to $1,200 a month. So services exist in the North for a price. But how exactly is it set up? What makes it different from regions with more stable and affordable internet access? Telecommunication services are for the most part delivered by old school satellites. There is a new technology coming online soon called low earth orbit satellites or LEOs. And it does show promise for rural and remote areas to get connected. What you don't see in the Arctic right now is, is a lot of fiber. Fiber being the real gold standard for internet connectivity. When Mark says fiber is the gold standard, what it comes down to is speed. The internet from a low-orbit satellite gets up to 50 megabits per second, on a good day. Fiber can deliver speeds more than 20 times that, and it's not weather-dependent. In a nutshell, fiber works by transmitting light through cables, which ISPs, or internet service providers, can then tap into to provide service to homes. There's an ongoing effort to bring fiber to Ihaluit by laying cables under the sea to connect to Greenland's existing fiber network. But essentially, like any other utility, if the infrastructure doesn't already exist, it takes millions of dollars to build from scratch— and the further you are from a big city, the less pre-existing infrastructure you can build off of. It goes without saying that Canada is a very large country. 
but you don't realize just how large Canada is until you've traveled in the north, until you've you've had to go on a three-hour flight on a nine-seater plane uh, to a community of, of, of 300 people. And when you do that, you really start to see the infrastructure challenges. We tend to rely on the private sector to deploy internet access. For the first 20 years of the internet, uh, we did a really good job connecting a lot of people to the internet, but it was based on, on market forces, right? So it became how many people can you connect to the internet in the quickest amount of time for the least amount of money. What that resulted in is that Canada has some of the highest internet penetration rates in the world. Uh, but that's simply because of our geography. The vast majority of Canadians live within 100 kilometers of the, of the U.S. border. Where the, the market-based approach fails is in those communities where there may not be a return on investment for the, the private sector to deploy access. So the primary issue is a lack of market incentive, and the complicating factor is geography. So how does the Internet Society help remote communities overcome these barriers? Globally, the Internet Society sees its role as connecting the hardest communities in the world. Uh, in North America, that certainly means Arctic communities. We are big proponents of something called community networks. So these are, are networks cooperatively owned and operated by a community. We work with our partners in the North and, and elsewhere to train community members to build, operate, and manage their own ISPs cooperatively. We also support them with equipment donations and provide ongoing support. It doesn't replace market-based solutions or our big internet service providers building out access to, to, to areas. But what it, it does is provides a viable alternative for those communities who are currently left behind in the, the digital revolution. Where markets fail, community prevails. And the Internet Society is providing resources to communities to connect themselves. But as an outside organization, there's a lot to keep in mind when entering communities that have been otherwise underserved. Mark speaks to how they navigate this reality. We see ourselves as, as facilitators and not the be-all, end-all. It's really about building a collective knowledge and building what we call a network of, of networkers, a network of Indigenous networkers who can support the work of communities trying to get online now. We actually hold an annual conference called the Indigenous Connectivity Summit. The Indigenous Connectivity Summit brings together the expertise of community leaders and network specialists. Mark explained how Indigenous-owned networks are not a new thing, and there are a number of communities in North America who are willing to share their knowledge with other communities who are about to undertake the journey. One of the things that comes out of the Indigenous Connectivity Summit is an agreed upon set of policy recommendations to policymakers and to anyone else engaged in this work. Regardless of where a local community is, it should be a full partner at the table when decisions are made about connectivity and work that will occur in that region. I work in the nonprofit space as well, and we refer to that as the bottom-up approach. Um, would it be fair to say that that's the approach that um, you all take when consulting with communities? We take the bottom-up approach 
because you know, I said we were founded in 1992. That means we've been around almost three decades, which when you think about that in, in terms of internet time, that's essentially an eternity, right? And, and we learned over the years, we learned that uh, a top-down approach is not sustainable. That for sustainable initiatives to build connectivity have to be driven by the community. We train the community members to operate the network as opposed to having someone else operate the network for them because we believe that that ensures that that network will be sustainable along with providing some skills and knowledge that they may be able to transfer to a job if they pursue that. Following the 2018 Connectivity Summit, Mark was approached by representatives of a town called Uluhaktuk. The town wanted to establish their own network, rather than relying on the internet services provided by an external company. Uluhaktuk is a community in the Northwest Territories, the northern third of the Northwest Territories, of a little over 300 people. Uh, the people who live there are mostly Inuvialuit, so the Inuit of the Western Arctic. They have not had quality or affordable internet service yet. This is the community I mentioned where residents have told us they can pay up to $1,200 a month for internet service. We have been working with Uluhaktuk for a couple of years now to help them build their own network uh, and operate their own internet service provider as a, as a not-for-profit. A number of residents in the community have gone through our, our training program to learn how to build a network and how to operate a network. You can build a network in a community and that community will be connected to each other, but there needs to be a way for that to connect out to the global internet. That's what we call backhaul. Backhaul is really one of the big challenges in the North. Uh, right now it's provided by satellite, which is, is slow uh, and it can be very, very expensive. And as compared to the $1,200 a month that some people are paying for their service, what is the cost of this sort of technology, this, this kind of homegrown solution that you guys are providing? So for a community the size of Uluhaktuk, three to 400 people, you can build the on-the-ground infrastructure for you know, $25,000. And it's a high-quality network. You're not talking fiber to the home, but what you're talking about is uh, a base station with receivers on all of the houses in, in the community. That twenty-five dollars to $35,000 could also include the, the satellite base station when uh, low Earth orbit satellites come on, on stream. So we're not talking about a huge amount of money paid out for capital costs. The right. capital costs can be can be kept very low. In fact, we in 2019 we deployed a network in a in a native Hawaiian community who had no access to begin with. That work was done for less than twenty thousand dollars, right? And now they have a, a fully operational internet service provider that they operate for the benefit of the people in their community. We can do that in the north as well. Uh, capital costs not being much, but when you're talking satellite the operating costs become the real challenge. The time of writing this script, Uluhaktuk is actually on day eight of unreliable internet, following a power outage. According to CBC, ATMs are down and people are currently struggling to pay for food and gas. Where we are right now in the world, 
internet connectivity is no longer an option. You have to have a connection to the internet to be successful. Whether or not that means you, if you're a northerner, you decide that you want to live a more traditional life and, and hunt and fish and trap, or you want to go to university. You can imagine what it's like for someone who's grown up in a community of, of 300 people uh, to have to leave to complete high school. Mm-hmm. We've seen in, in Thunder Bay uh, what happens to these young people from Northern Ontario who have to come south to complete their education. High school completion rates will go through the roof if you allow people to complete their diploma uh, at home in their community, similar to university education. It opens up a world of opportunity for youth in the North to be able to access the same services that we all take for granted in the South. The government committed to putting $1.75 billion into a universal broadband fund. So there is hope that things will improve. I do think that the government is committed to addressing the connectivity gap in in Canada. Without question, that's a a significant amount of money Mm -hmm. and can do a lot of good work. The devil is always in the details, though. So the questions we have around the Universal Broadband Fund are, who is eligible to receive funding? Who gets the funding? We often see that community-based, community-driven initiatives like community networks aren't eligible or the criteria for funding essentially leaves them out of being able to access that, that funding. So that's something we're continuously advocating for is, is to ensure that community networks are, are seen as a, a valid alternative to funding incumbent telecommunications companies. The other challenge we see is around networks take spectrum, access to spectrum. You know, the, the waves that, that travel through the air to, to bring information from one point to the next. If you're going to have a wireless network, you need access to Spectrum. Spectrum is, is big business. The government controls who gets it, uh, and they grant access to it by auctioning it off from time to time. Those auctions, Spectrum can go for many, many millions of dollars which again leaves communities at, at a disadvantage. We'd like to see spectrum set-asides for uh, rural and remote areas, and in particular in, in Indigenous communities. And that's something that has happened in other parts of, of, of the world and happened successfully. Don't worry if you got a little lost. Spectrum can be a difficult concept to wrap your head around. Basically, spectrum is in the environment. It's electromagnetic radiation. What's important to keep in mind is that it's a limited natural resource, meaning it's not something that we can produce more of. And since there's only so much of it to go around, it's up to the government to manage who has access to what. And who benefits from Spectrum, or who gets to be connected online, is really important. The internet has become a place for discourse and civic engagement, activism, and education. But a lot of people are still fighting just to gain access to that virtual public square. I was in Tunisia a few years ago, and, you know, I talked to some of the, the people who had led the Arab Spring in Tunisia, and they said that the internet meant freedom to them. The internet was worth dying for. The idea that, and this is something our Hawaiian friends talk to us a lot about, is 
the internet is allowing them to create a global community of indigenous people. Preservation of indigenous language, preservation of indigenous knowledge. Indigenous people around the globe have all suffered from the effects of colonialism. And by connecting to each other via the internet, you create this global community of support and just shared knowledge and stories. And in a broader sense, I asked Mark what the internet means for the UN's 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. The Sustainable Development Goals are about essentially achieving equity for for all people. The internet is a technology, it's a tool to achieve that. At the end of every email or at the end of every tweet or podcast that's put online, there are people, right? But it is essentially just a tool to help us achieve a better society. So we couldn't end this episode without doing a little research of our own. Back when we were on the call with Andrea, my producer Ellen and I tested our speeds to see how they compared. Are we all ready? Okay. Yeah. Three, two, one, test. Okay, I'm ready. I'm stressed. (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I think I'm going to win. What are you seeing right now? Just describe it for people who are listening. Uh, I'm seeing a... Like a speedometer. Yes, yes. Okay, I'm seeing a speedometer and it is calculating my upload speed. I'm done now. Okay, what did you guys get? I got uh, my download speeds 186 millibits per second. Upload speeds 273. Oh my god, your internet is so good. I'm not going to shout out my service provider, but yeah, it's good. (laughs) My download speed was 161. Okay. And my upload speed was 82. Wait, do you want to hear mine though? Yes. My download is 47.71. And my upload is (laughs) (laughs) 9.33. How are you... How are you hosting this call? (laughs) (laughs) The differences in internet quality across Canada are not simply an inconvenience or fact of life that we should accept. It's a human rights issue, a matter of Indigenous sovereignty, and an inequity that can be solved. Andrea has shown us how a lack of connection in the North can reproduce historical pressures for Indigenous students to relocate from their communities. From Mark, we learned that where the market fails, there are options for Inuit communities to create their own solutions, provided the government gives them the literal space, or spectrum, to do so. For those of us who are just learning about all this, it's time to consider how we'll bridge the connectivity gap in ways that prioritize and respect Indigenous sovereignty. My name is Tokumba Aribui, and this has been No Little Plans, a podcast from the Community Foundations of Canada. This show is produced by Ellen Payne-Smith. Our associate producer is Sabrina Brathwaite. Katie Jensen is our executive producer. Our music is by Elcon. This show is a project of Strategic Content Labs. If you want to learn more about the SDGs, go to alliance2030.ca. It's a website created by Community Foundations of Canada to track SDG efforts from communities across Canada. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share as it helps other people find the show. 
We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at No Little Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts and join us as we look at the big plan to reshape the world. 